4: our network is here.
2: Oh no punch. A real uh, revolutionary right now.
5: We support this man,
2: Black
6: Media. He makes sure that our stories are told. Uh,
4: thank you for being the voice of Black America voters. Hey I love y'all. All the we have now Folks, today is Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022, coming up on Roland Martin on a filter on the Black Star Network, live from the People's Republic of Brooklyn. We're here at Fort 40 Acres of the Mule, uh, the offices of Spike Lee. Uh, I just finished doing uh, an interview for his Colin Kaepernick documentary, so I'm glad to be here. Uh, folks, on today's show, uh, the uh, third day of the confirmation hearing, uh, for uh, Judge Katonti Brown-Jackson continues as more an office Republicans, but she holds her own and makes it perfectly clear uh, that she cannot be messed with. We'll also tell you about uh, what she has decided with regards to the Harvard uh, affirmative action case that's going to go before the Supreme Court. Uh, also uh, on today's show, folks, he was going to his car when he was surrounded by plainclothes New Jersey police officers. He was shot. He now is suing. We'll talk with the attorney for Jawan Henderson on the show. Also, Howard University administration and non-tenure faculty, they have finally reached a deal. We'll tell you about that deal that will end uh, their uh, three-day strike. The Washington State family, they're getting a $4 million settlement for a police-involved death of their loved one. And also, twin brothers wrongfully convicted of murder 25 years ago have been released from prison. They may get $50,000 each for the time they actually spent behind bars. In our Tech Talk segment, a former inmate has created an app uh, to bring a little love to others in prison. Folks, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it.
3: Whatever it is.
1: Certain kinds of decisions, you have to... Live uh, view of of the
4: confirmation hearings for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, day three. They continue. Uh, Let's go live and hear what she has to say.
1: Was not that the agency couldn't pick 24 months. Because obviously, Congress had said in the statute, you can pick between zero and 24 months. The claim that was being made (laughs) is that the agency picked 24 months arbitrarily in violation of Congress's direction about how you go about The exercise. APA was violated? Yes, the claim was an APA violation. So no one was saying that the statute was violated in the sense that the agency did something that it couldn't have done per the statute, picking 24 months. They said the APA was violated because, this is the claim that they were making, Sure. because the agency did no analysis The agency did no expertise. The agency did not evaluate, okay, if you've been here six months, these are the kinds of ties that you have. If you've been here 18 months, right? The agency didn't do anything. Essentially, according to the claimants, the agency heard the president say, we're going to now... Do twenty-four months when everybody else, all of the other administrations, got up to it. this I'm point. I'm you because I've only
6: got two. Yes, people. I'm sorry. All right. Is, is so I you, what I hear you saying is, tell me if I'm wrong. Yes. They they didn't follow the APA, in your opinion, which you have to do, even though Congress passed the statute. Well,
1: no, because two things. One is the APA, under DC longstanding DC Circuit case law, is presumptively applicable to every situation in which an agency is exercising its discretion. So that's the first thing. It's always there as a background rule. So the D.C. Circuit has said Congress has to be pretty clear when it decides to exclude the APA, when it's saying, I'm giving you discretion, but you can do this arbitrarily, you can do it however you want. And in other places in the immigration statute that sets up expedited removal, Congress says we are excluding the APA. We're telling you that with respect to this kind okay. of discretion, the APA doesn't apply. Okay. So here I had these two statutes, and there are canons of statutory interpretation that says that you should try to give effect to all of the will of Congress. You should try to read statutes so that they go together in a way if you have these two directives. And there's also DC circuit case law. Judge, I gotta stop th- you. All right. Because I'm I got it. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and and let me just say I agree that the DC circuit reversed me. They disagreed with my interpretation, and that's the way that our system works.
6: Let me ask this last question. This is this is a question about based on your experience. Can we agree that if I want to emphasize if Cocaine is cocaine. That crack cocaine is equal in in its its danger to powdered cocaine. You with me? I think so. <laughs> One is not more dangerous than the other. If that's true, mm. then the sentencing rules ought to be the same. Okay? I don't, it's a I,
1: policy matter for Congress. You could make them differently if you right. wanted this, to.
6: This one I want to ask you. Yeah. Based on your experience, you've been yeah. on the bench a decade. Yes. Is crack more cocaine more dangerous than powder or less, or the same?
1: Senator, that's a policy determination. That's what policymakers do. They look at the evidence related to these things and they decide what's more dangerous. But what have you seen? What should? Bench? I have seen evidence. Um, through the Sentencing Commission that the two compositions are chemically uh, similar, um, so similar as to be indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. Um, and the commission, for very many years, um, as a policymaking body, indicated its view that they should be uh, equivalent and lobbied Congress concerning that. And Congress made a determination about, in the policy realm, um, making it 18 to 1, instead of 100 to 1, which is what it had previously meant. Okay.
6: Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kennedy.
1: And now, Senator Padilla. Uh,
0: Mr. Chairman, before uh, I begin, uh, I know uh, you're being very mindful of the clock, so I just want to say I have uh, two
4: initial, more substantive questions. All right, folks, I uh, that great great was some of the hearing. Questions, A- A- anytime uh, I have to important. listen to um uh senator john kennedy of louisiana uh, I, I can't stand to do so that fake ass accent of his y'all he never had that accent when he was a democrat all of a sudden he got the home caught the homespun, uh uh conjured voice y'all that's a fraud his accent is a flat out fraud so i it's it's just oh it gets on my nerves uh dealing with him speaking of getting on my nerves oh my goodness who 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 showed his ass today senator lindsey graham of south carolina he, he, he was so sickening and stupid, he got called out not only by Dick Durbin, who chair the Senate Judiciary Committee, he also got called out by the former
7: chair of the committee, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy. Watch this. You've lived an incredible life, but here's one thing that won't happen to you as we wrap this up. How would you feel that if I'd had a letter from somebody accusing you of something a crime or misconduct, for weeks, and I give it to Senator Durbin just before this hearing's over, and not allow you to comment on the accusation. How would you feel about that?
1: Senator, I'm I'm not sure. I don't understand the context of the question.
7: Well, let me—did you watch the Kavanaugh hearings? No, sir. Are you familiar with what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings?
1: Generally. Senator, your time
7: is— Well, please, Mr. Chairman. Uh, So, to be honest, it's a minute and 47 seconds. She filibustered every question I had, and she has a right to give an answer. But I'm trying to make a point in 20 minutes. You were here for Kavanaugh. If she's confused about what happened, some people on the other side had an accusation against Judge Kavanaugh that during high school uh, he sexually assaulted somebody and the rest is history. That was known to the people on the other side and never revealed during the meetings they had with Judge Kavanaugh. It was literally ambushed. He was ambushed. How would you feel if we did that to you?
1: Senator, I've appreciated the kindness that each of you has shown me to see me in
7: your offices,
1: to talk with me
7: about but my, approach? But, but my question is, what if, it, during our 15-minute exchange, it was very pleasant. You're a very nice person. You have a lot to be proud of. I would never do that to you. If I had some information that's sketchy at best, that somehow you've done something wrong, I promise you, just from human decency, I would share it with you. I would not disclose it at the last minute of the last day of the hearing, And I've already given it to a newspaper so the whole country can read about it before you ever said a word. Senator, she's had nothing to do with the cause. No, but I'm asking her about how how she may feel about what y'all did. Senator,
1: your time has expired, and I'm gonna give her an opportunity to finally complete an answer. So, if I could
5: Just answer the
1: question. Senator, I don't have any comment on what procedures took place in this body regarding
7: What do you think Justice- about the
1: Kavanaugh, here? Kavanaugh. What I'd to- like to answer is your points about my sentencings in child pornography cases. The point of the guidelines is to assist judges in determining what punishment to provide in cases. And there are horrible cases, but the idea is that between the range of punishment that congress has prescribed judges are supposed to be providing proportional punishment based on what a person has done
8: it was going well until this last round of questioning and it was that's an abrogation of everything the senate should stand for uh you had a republican member who went way over the time allotted to I uh, ignored the rules of the committee, badgered the nominee, would not even let her answer the questions. Uh, that, that I've never seen anything like that, I've been here 48 years. Here we have a highly respected and respectable nominee, and to be treated that way. I, I don't know what the motivation might be or what political motivation it is. But to see the badgering of this woman uh, as she's trying to testify, I thought was outrageous.
4: Thank you. All right. But then, of course, you had to deal with this idiot, Ted Cruz, talking about badgering. Watch this fool.
9: So yesterday, uh, under, under questioning from Senator Blackburn, uh, you told her that, that you couldn't define what a woman is, uh, that you were not a biologist, which, which I think you're the, the only Supreme Court nominee in history who's been unable to answer the question, what is a woman? Let me ask you, as a judge, how would you determine if a plaintiff had Article Three standing uh, to challenge a gender-based rule, regulation, policy, uh, without being able to determine what a woman was.
1: So, Senator, I know that I'm a woman. I know that um, Senator Blackburn is a woman, and the woman who I um, admire most in the world is in the room today, my mother. Um, it sounded as though well, but the, the but question but, but was— But let me
9: ask, un- under the modern leftist sensibilities, if if I decide right now that, that I'm a woman— um, then apparently i'm a woman does that mean that i would have article 3 standing to challenge a gender-based restriction
1: senator to the extent that you are asking me about um who has the ability to bring lawsuits based on gender those kinds of issues are working their way through the courts and i'm not able to comment on them
9: okay if, if if i can change my gender if I can be a woman, and then an hour later, if I decide I'm not a woman anymore, I guess I would lose Article Three standing. Uh, tell me, does that same principle apply to other protected characteristics? For example, I'm, I'm an Hispanic man. Could could I decide I was an Asian man? W- w- would I have the ability to be an Asian man and challenge Harvard's discrimination because I made that decision?
1: Senator, I'm not able to answer your question. You're asking me about hypotheticals and um,
9: well, I'm asking you how you would assess standing if I if I came in and said "I have decided I identify as an Asian man.
1: I would assess standing the way I assess other legal issues, which is to listen to the arguments made by the parties, consider the relevant precedents uh, and the constitutional principles involved, and make a determination. <sighs>
4: All right, y'all. Let, let, let's, let, let's go. Let's go to my. <laughs> let's go to my panel, please. Uh, joining us right now is uh, Cliff Albright, co-founder of Black Voters Matter. Cliff, glad to have you here. Uh, also, uh, Renee Hutchins uh, also joins us uh, as well. R- Renee McDonald Hutchins uh, with the University of the District of Columbia. We also have a Scott Bolden uh Robert Patillo and we'll be joined shortly by uh Monique Presley as we uh break all of this down. Renee, I want to start with you. I mean we if we thought yesterday was stuck on stupid having to listen to that idiot uh John Kennedy and then having to listen to Marsha Blackburn, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, uh and and Lindsey Graham. I mean, seriously, Lindsey, let it go. Kavanaugh's on the Supreme Court. This ain't part two, dude. I mean, what, do you, what did you make of just the insanity from the right today?
10: It was remarkably frustrating. Um, watching today's uh, uh, hearings was remarkably frustrating. It felt at times less like a serious vetting of somebody who is being considered for lifetime appointment to the court and more like political candidates looking for opposition research on their opponent so that they could take her down. It was remarkably frustrating, and Senator Booker, I think, channeled that frustration of all of us when he spoke directly to judge, soon-to-be-justice, let's be clear, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and told her that she was his North Star, that she was the harbinger of hope, that this country continues to get better and better, and because of her, it will get better still.
4: In fact, I want to actually play some of what uh, Senator Cory Booker had to say, because it really was important, an important moment uh, in today's uh, confirmation hearing. So so folks, if y'all could go ahead and play what Booker had to say.
0: Uh, Thank you very much, Judge. After me, only five to go. (laughs) But sit back for a second, because I don't have questions right away. I actually have a number of things I I just want to say, because this has been uh, not a surprise given the history that we all know, not a surprise, but uh, perhaps a little bit of a disappointment, uh, some of the things that have been said in, in this hearing. Uh, the way you have dealt with some of these things, um, that's why you are a judge and I am a politician, because you have sat with grit and grace and have shown us just extraordinary uh, demeanor uh, during the times where people were saying things to you that are actually out of the norm. I had to go up dais uh, to ask some of my more senior colleagues about the, what I feel like is a dangerous precedent. People are taking uh, a 1,000 cases you've been o- over. Is that right? I'm sorry. I said you wouldn't ask you questions, but just give me a... Some, something like that. Something like that. And from what I understand is that these cases are often takes take days, weeks, sometimes months, right? To, to, to decide to in a stu- case? Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's a trial sometimes. And yes. the, the folks are taking any of those cases and just trying to pick pieces out. And so uh, my my colleague, Senator Hawley, has been doing this all into the lead-up and saying things, tweeting things, that I think that a lot of us, when I was just trying to get some advice here, is this is what the new standard is going to be. That any judge coming before us that has ever chosen outside of the sentencing guidelines, below the sentencing guidelines, we're creating this environment now where I could make myself the hero of people who have been victims of some horrible crime and suddenly put whatever judge I want on the defensive by trying to drag out little bits when they have no context to the case. None of the facts. They're seeking to exploit the complexities of a criminal justice system, the reason why we have a third branch of government. I I feel bad that there was a judge mentioned by name in this hearing that's Uh, uh, from Senator Hawley's state. What is that judge going to think next time they they have a complicated sexual abuse case that comes before them and they know that they could possibly be called out if they go below the sentencing guidelines, which I showed you yesterday in my lack of chart. If you remember, I was uncharted. um, (laughs) But that you are deciding completely in the norm. 70-plus percent in many states of people are doing just like you did. But I'm a, I'm a Democratic senator. I, 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 I've never quoted from this very well-respected conservative a periodical. This is the National Review. Very well-respected. They're not, not necessarily something I agree with all the time. But here's what the National Review, this is the title. Senator Hawley's disingenuous attack against Judge Jackson's record on child pornography. Let's read the first paragraph. I would oppose... Judge Katanji Ketan- Brown Jackson because of her judicial philosophy for the reasons I outlined last week. I addressed that in a separate post. For now, I want to dis- discuss the claim by Senator Josh Hawley that Judge Jackson is appallingly soft on child pornography offenders. This is the kicker here. The allegations appear meritless to the point of demagoguery. I, I got letters from leaders of victims' rights groups, survivors of assault, all saying sort of the same thing with the National Review. Feel proud about yourself. You brought together right and left in this, in this, in this calling out of people that will sit up here and try to pull out from cases and try to put themselves in a position where they're the defenders of our children, to a person who has children, to a person whose family goes out in streets and defends children, I I, I mean, this is a a new, new low. And what's especially surprising about this is it didn't happen last year.
4: Scott, were you embarrassed that supposedly these are the best that America has to offer these United States senators?
5: (laughs) I think demagoguery is a, a great term for it. I actually thought her judicial record is fair game, and I thought in the first day, in the first round, when the Republicans started looking at her record, I thought, okay, fair game, she handled herself well, I thought the second day and the third day and the continuing pounding and rudeness in the face of her class and in the face of her demeanor was really offensive. Then I got offended at it because, you remember, the Republicans promised on the first day that they were this was not going to be a political clown show. And by the third day, the, the Republicans you name, Hawley and Cruz and others, who have a reputation for being uh, strong, well-educated uh, 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 lawyers uh, just w- took it to a whole other level. But remember, they're not playing to uh, the judge being getting the votes. They know they can't stop that. They're playing to this social war uh, and, and to their base and to running for office. And they turned into a clown show. And so those were my observations.
4: Um, I was looking at your tweets, um, Cliff Albright, and you were, let's just say, a wee bit agitated at what you witnessed the last couple of days.
11: Yeah, Roland, just 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 a wee bit, you know. And the, the tweet you're talking about is that you know we have to keep in mind not only were these these clowns, not only were these racists um, being ridiculous because they're really auditioning for the presidency, right? Uh, exactly. An, an audition, which, which, by the way, in order to get that, they're going to have to go past somebody who is a, a repeated serial sex offender, who for four years they gave unabashed allegiance to at the White House and never had an issue with, with him. Uh, uh, you know, if they were so concerned about... Um, um, you know, at one point, Lindsey Graham tried to compare the treatment that they were giving to, to Judge Brown Jackson to the treatment that Kavanaugh received. In other words, he's more concerned than the rest of them are more concerned about the way that she gave sentencing to child pornographers, but were absolutely fine with ignoring the fact that they had an accused child pornographer that they literally put on the, the highest court in the country because Kavanaugh was the same age as, as one of those cases that that Harley kept harping on where the person was 18 years old. Kavanaugh was 18, and, and in fact, 18 for just one, because keep in mind, there were two that Kavanaugh had, one where he was in college, right? And so they're more concerned with how she's sentencing on child pornographers and sex offenders than the fact that they they voted for one to the Supreme Court, they gave allegiance to another while he was in the White House. And truth be told, if they're that concerned about tra- child pornography, all Harley or Cruz has to do is go out that chamber, go down the hall to, to, to the house where two of their colleagues, Gets and, and, and Jim Jordan, are sitting, who both have direct connections to, to child pornography but they're not going to do that. If they're that concerned about the sentencing guidelines, either one of them could pass something in regards to the sentencing guidelines, but they're not going to do that. What this is about is that they are trying to tarnish a black woman, and in doing so, going back to the tweet that you mentioned, they are actually referencing and using one of the oldest tropes, one of the oldest stereotypes that we've had in this country, which is the trope of a black woman as the Jezebel as the the over-sexualized... They are literally trying to present a case that somehow she has an affection or support or an advocacy for for, for child pornography. That is very much in line with the images... uh, Right. That is very much in line with the image that they tried to create of black women during slavery, even before slavery, but especially during slavery, because that's the way that they rationalized the fact that they were systematically raping black women in this country. They created that image in order to justify it, in order to give the appearance that they wanted. They are using that same imagery, that same trope, on this highly accomplished and disciplined. And I, I don't know how she's sitting through it. I can't... I'm sitting in my TV trying to throw stuff at the, the TV. If for nothing else, <laughs> she needs to be concerned... I mean, she needs to be confirmed just because she had the courage to sit through cowardly attacks. From these two people, or, or more than two, from all of these people, who are nothing but cowardly racists. Right,
4: Robert Patillo, uh, your assessment.
12: Well, you know, it's interesting to me the fact that you have these individuals who claim that they are uh, uh, interested in vetting this uh, uh, this woman for the the highest court in the land. But at the same time, they did nothing at all when you had somebody accused of 26 to 27 of sexual assaults in the White House. Uh, As was just mentioned by Cliff, you have Gates and Jordan in the House of Representatives. And think about the accusations they've made against Judge Brown Jackson. One, that she's somehow soft on child pornographers. Yesterday, they insinuated that she was uh, sympathized with terrorists at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, right. Ted Cruz insinu- uh, insinuating that she somehow, as a black woman, is going to bring CRT and critical race theory into the, uh, and make that the law of the land. Some that the Republican National Committee tweeted out uh, that her name equals CRT. They're not even faking it anymore. It's not even... Dog- I keep hearing uh, mainstream media talking about dog whistles. This isn't a dog whistle. This is just straight-up old-fashioned racism. They would never... You know, imagine if Judge Brown Jackson broke down the way that Kavanaugh did and started foaming at the mouth and cussing and spitting and uh, banging the table, those sorts of things. They're trying their best to get a moment like that, and she's been masterful and making sure that she keeps a calm demeanor, This does not fall for any of their traps. These people should be ashamed of themselves, as Senator Leahy said. Uh, they've broken all... Uh, all of the last uh, uh, even perceptions of decorum that once existed. And I think it is very clear that they are a desperate place where they are trying to play to the most far-right-wing conspiracy theory parts of the Republican Party. I mean, even farther right than the MAGA groups. These are the QAnon conspiracies about Democrats drinking babies' bloods and having pedophile rings, those sorts of things. This is the part of the Republican Party they're trying to play to, and we have to call them out for it and ensure that in the next election, one of those people is not on the ballot because the potentiality of somebody like that going into the White House could be even more dangerous than President Trump was.
4: uh, Is Monique there? All right, let me know when 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 she's on. Um, Renee... um, they kept trying to come back to this this whole issue of child pornography. I mean, they, they have nothing else. They literally have nothing else. Uh, even when we played that coming coming live, the video, uh, going to uh, Syrian John Kennedy, he's talking about powder cocaine, crack cocaine, and she's like, I'm sorry, that's your job. The right. fact of the matter is, Congress can actually make it uh, the same, whether it's powder cocaine or crack cocaine, I mean, it used to be 100 to 1, then it was reduced to 10 to 1. It still should be changed. Don't be looking at her. Do your damn job, Senator Kennedy.
10: One of the things that I just applaud soon-to-be Justice Jackson for, and I'm going to keep saying that because we are going to speak it into existence because it is going to happen. One of the things that I absolutely have to applaud her for is she has been masterful at reminding the Senate of what their job is and what the limits on her power as a judge are. It has been a masterclass in endurance, and it is not just the trope of black woman as Jezebel that they are attempting to trigger. Some of these political stunts and character attacks, it seems, have been an, an, an intentional effort to trigger an angry reaction from her, much like Kavanaugh's reaction, so that they can then complain that she is an angry black woman who does not have the judicial demeanor to sit on the court, and she is not biting. She, she, it is a masterclass in endurance.
4: You know, it was just this, uh, this, this one after the other, and it was important. It was important, um, uh, Scott, for her to say, that's your job. You can change that. You can fix that. So I love it how they whine about judicial activism, but don't want to accept the role that they play in dealing with a lot of these laws. Yeah, uh, that's pretty clear. But this is what happens when you run
5: up against excellence, Roland. When average white men of power, whether elected or appointed, or rather rooted in privilege, When you run up against excellence, who happens to be an African-American woman, you see, they couldn't stand the scrutiny that they're putting her through. Um, I've done a lot on the federal sentencing guidelines, over 30 years of practicing law. Um, Their job is to either appoint, delegate, or draft what the federal sentencing guidelines are, which are advisory. If they you were to look in their record of who they've represented let alone look in mine over 35 years prosecutor and criminal defense lawyer right and you could scrutinize my clients as white-collar criminal defendants I've represented I've represented uh, child pornographers and prosecuted them as well as those who are pedophiles prosecuted and defended them but But they know that as a lawyer, you can't scrutinize the lawyer's record because there's a constitution that says everyone's entitled to a lawyer. And so it's really unfair in that regard, too, whether you're looking at her opinions or looking at who she's defended over the years. At one point, they were criticizing her representing Guantanamo uh, defendants, but she was an associate at a big law firm. Associates don't have a right to say yes or no to who they're going to defend. That's the partner's call. And so she was just contributing. And so the whole analysis to score points with their base is really what this is about. The other thing they're trying to do is they were trying to limit how many other Republicans who are going to support her. At last count, I think it's five, maybe ten that are going to support her no matter what. But it's hard to oppose excellence. And that's what we've seen the last two or three days, just really excellence in every way. Well, and
4: Cliff... I really do hope, and I say this over and over and over again till I'm blue-black in the face. (laughs) For the people out there who whine and complain, who do not understand the importance of voting, I hope you see what happened when you don't turn out and elect Beto O'Rourke and we get Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. And... You listen to the silliness of Tom Tillis. We could put Sherry Beasley in the U.S. Senate, and so she'll be asking those questions. We could, you got, of course, races in Wisconsin, Ohio. We can get rid of Marco Rubio, put in Val Dennis. For people who are saying what I heard today and yesterday and Monday is nonsensical, you can remove U.S. senators from power. Cliff?
11: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Roland. I mean, if we just think about what we've seen in this hearing and then in some related interviews and discussions that have taken place this week, in this hearing, they have challenged uh, Obergefell. Uh, uh, you know, dealing with uh, same-sex marriage, they've obviously been—they they got their sights set on Roe versus Wade, Wade right? versus weight, excuse me, um, and reproductive justice. Um, you know, there's there's a number of. They even uh, one senator, not in this hearing, but in, in related comments, was was recorded, basically saying that um, the Loving decision, which was the decision that that got rid of. Um, miscegenation laws and, and enable us to have interracial marriages, saying that that needs to be overturned. This, this is what they have on their agenda if they get control of, or, or of the, the nominating process, the confirmation process for the Supreme Court. It is already out of balance, and it will be out of balance even more so with even more extreme judges, and not just at the Supreme Court level. We know the impact of what happens when you fill the federal, the, um, the, the, the pipeline, of federal judges leading up to the Supreme Court. This is real stuff. Like, these are these are real rights that we take for granted that are, are not guaranteed. And if we don't come out and vote, and if we don't deal with this Senate, not to mention all the other issues that we need Senate action on, including voting rights, right? Um, but these are the, these are real... People like to talk about bread and butter issues, Who you're able to marry and and where you're able to go to school and and whether or not you've got reproductive, that's just as important as as the rate of inflation, right? These are real rights that affect our daily lives. In some cases, they are actually matters of life or death. And this is what's at stake if we don't come out and vote and impact what the what the Senate looks like moving forward for at least the next couple of years and and beyond. We have got to come out and take these Senate races seriously, as well as all the other races that are that are on the ballot up and down the ticket.
4: Uh, Robert, um, John Ossoff, Senator John Ossoff is on this panel. He, of course, uh, won a six year term. Bottom line is this year, Georgia. Got to have a massive turnout to get Senator Raphael Warnock reelected elections have their consequences and people need to understand the United States senators are the ones who are going to vote to confirm federal judges so people cannot act like these issues are not related.
12: Uh, absolutely. And just remember, if it wasn't for the massive turnout here in Georgia in January of last year, uh, you wouldn't have a majority for Democrats on that panel. You will not be able to move through a Judge, uh, Judge Jackson to becoming Justice Jackson without that type of turnout. And if you want to see, instead of having John Ossoff on that panel, you know, somebody like a Herschel Walker... Uh, they're asking questions and trying to put sentences together. That's what happens if you don't turn out to vote. They already elected Tommy Tupperville in Alabama, who is competing with Marshall Blackburn to be the dumbest senator in the history of the United States Senate. And then when you think they're winning, then Ted Cruz, who we know isn't dumb, tries to do a dumb person impression to get as dumb as them. We are racing to the bottom on that side of the aisle. They're in a, a media silo where they only listen to the dif- different conspiracy theories from their own side of the aisle and have lost complete sight of the needs of the American people. Do you think there's any uh, uh, single mother sitting at home trying to put bills together, trying to figure out uh, uh, whether or not uh, this justice is soft on terrorism in Guantanamo 10 years ago? That doesn't even make sense. So they're they're no longer operating from a point of view of trying to actually address things that the American people care about. It's a small cadre on the far right that wins these elections, the donor base of those millionaires and billionaires that fund their campaigns. That's who they are appealing to. And because of that, we have to make sure we turn out with people power so we can keep them out of office. Because who knows at this point in time what public policy they will put in place if they actually had the majority again?
4: And that uh, is something that we uh, absolutely uh, should pay attention to. Renee, you get the final comment.
10: As my final comment, I would wanna say that soon to be Justice Jackson is a brilliant legal mind. She has impeccable character. And um, uh, unless there is a cataclysmic catastrophe, she will soon be confirmed to be the next justice on the Supreme Court and the first black woman. And that is something that, as, as Senator Cory Booker said, you're not going to steal my joy on that one.
4: <laughs> All right, then. Uh, I certainly appreciate it. Renee, thank you very much for joining us. Cliff Albright, thank you for joining us as well on today's show. Thank you. All right, folks, got to go to a break. Uh, we come back more Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network, live from the People's Republic of Brooklyn here at Spike Lee's 40 Acres and a Mule uh, in Brooklyn. All right, folks, we'll be right back.
3: Don't you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth
1: Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network.
2: Chair, take your seat at the Black Tape with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network. Every week, we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black
1: Star Network.
0: Hi, I'm
1: Teresa Griffin.
3: Hi, my name is Latoya Luckett, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. <sighs>
4: All right, folks, um, in our black and missing 15 year old, Amani Gomes was last seen in Washington, D.C. on January 14th. Amani, Amani is five feet, four inches tall, weighs 135 pounds with brown eyes and black hair. She was last seen wearing a black jacket, orange and gray ski pants and orange and white sneakers. Anyone with information about Amani Gomes should call the Metropolitan Police Department at 202 727 9099 202 two727 nine zero nine nine all right folks Uh, two michigan brothers wrongfully convicted of murder who spent 25 years behind bars were released from prison on yesterday george and melvin de jesus were sentenced to life without without the possibility of parole for the 1995 killing of margaret midkiff new dna evidence and witness testimony got their convictions overturned brandon and go lied and said the brothers forced him to kill the woman his DNA was found on the scene. He has been convicted of other crimes against women in compliance with the state's Wrongful Imprisonment Compensation Act. The brothers received $50,000 for each year they were in prison and other reentry support services, including housing, job, and transportation help. That um, is, you know what? That, that to me really should be um, the state standard all across this country. Um, I'll start with Robert first.
12: Uh, that should be the floor. Uh, that should be the basement for what happens, because this happens far too often, Or there's actually no resources provided for people re- who are reentering after years of false Im- imprisonment. But let's think about the, the lost earning potential. Let's think about the fact that these individuals could have created a novel invention, a business. That's why uh, who knows what. So this should definitely be the, the floor for what is provided. But we really need to uh, invest societally in what we put into reentry programs, because the way I like to describe it is a lot of times, even if you're not convicted of your wrongful arrested and kept in custody with no no bond for example it's almost like getting abducted, abducted by aliens you don't you lose your house you lose your car you lose your job uh, your credit is shot and then even if the charges are dismissed six months later now you're re-entering a completely tattered life with no resources thereby uh, to rebuild So we have to uh, really examine what we do about reentry and what we do about giving people restitution who have been wrongfully incarcerated or held by the system.
4: Scott? Yeah,
5: you know, it ought to be the bare minimum, uh, the base, uh, Roland. Having gone through this very issue uh, with uh, Jimmy Gardner, as you know, um, it's tough. One, these young men and women wrongfully accused, wrongfully charged, and, and serve in time. Their life has changed forever, not just short-term, but long-term. And then getting out after 20, 30, 40 years in prison their life has been changed in ways, psychologically, physiologically, that no amount of money can give them back those lost years. Uh, and, and, and in working with experts and trying to come up with a number that would satisfy uh, and calculate for someone who's been in jail for 20, 30, 40 years wrongfully, they can come up with a number, but they can never come up with the psychological damage number to go with that, that, that analysis on what they would have done professionally. In Jimmy Gardner's case, he was a professional baseball player, AAA. Who knows what he would have done with the Chicago Cub organization or another organization. That was taken from him. And so the reality is that no amount of money is really uh, 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 appropriate because it can never make up for that loss. At the same time, every state has different laws on compensation for these individuals. And every state is different. Some have insurance limitations. Others have no limitations. Others have a calculation that makes a lot of sense, but it's a bare minimum. And then if the, if the individual and their families are of means or if you can find a law firm to take it on a contingency fee basis, basis it costs them tens of thousands of dollars still. And it takes years because the state will fight a higher compensation level or higher multimillion dollar uh, either settlement or success in civil court, which each of these individuals deserve. It gets real complicated. We need to uncomplicate it, and I know that from firsthand experience uh, in representing Jimmy Gardner after he was freed and cleared uh, from his conviction.
4: Uh, absolutely. Uh, Monique, uh, Presley Jones is right now. And to that particular um, uh, point, uh, we deal with this story here. I mean, my goodness, 25 years in prison for crime you didn't commit. And uh, luckily, they can qualify, qualify for $50,000 a year. In some states, you get nothing. Yeah, Right.
3: You're depending on really the kindness of donations and benefactors because... There's nothing codified that protects you. Yep, and that's a shame. I mean, and, and that's I, think, I, think, I heard you guys. I think I think I, right there should be a something uh, about.
4: I think I think there should be a a push for states uh, to ab- absolutely have to compensate folks who have been wrongfully convicted.
3: Right. And I don't know that it should be state by state. I think that there should be some sort of way for there to be federal payments to compensate for at least where there's been a federal offense. But either way, uh, this is another one of those things that has to be fixed by the legislature. It's not something that can be fixed on a case by case basis.
4: And, you know, Roland, this is Well, yeah, is not but again, though, know, and for the people, that's why voting also matters. Scott, go ahead. This issue is
5: not going away with the development of DNA and what have you. And, and, and if you're going to change, you put the state legislation in, try this on for size. The states, in many of these cases where they have released individuals for being wrongfully convicted 20, 30, after 20, 30, 40 years, the state and the attorney generals in these, these states... Are free to to uh, defend the state against multi-million dollar lawsuits. So on one hand, you have a criminal justice system at the state level that says, "Okay, we made a mistake. We're going to give you your freedom." On the other hand, when you sue them for millions of dollars in compensation, punitive you know, damages, the state AG office will often fight that to the nail, requiring these individuals. To spend even more money and time and resources trying to be made financially whole without any compensation uh, as a statutory compensation. And so when you when I look at these pictures of these individuals being freed after 25 years because they were not guilty, their journey has only begun. Because to fully compensate them and to get through a lawsuit and to, to try to try to get them in a position where they can just matriculate where they can get out of the system of being controlled and and the psychological damage from that and the physical damage from that, to even get in a position to just matriculate in the human condition will cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars when they should be compensated in the millions. And so we got a long way to go with this, but you're right, it's not going away because of the DNA testing that's coming out, and two, the culture of these states that, well, okay, You may not have done it, but we're still not going to give you a million dollars or millions of dollars that you're entitled to. We gave you your freedom. That's wrong-headed policy, and that's got to change. And I think you're going to see it changing uh, over the course of time in several states.
4: Well, and let me say it again for everybody out of here. I keep trying to tell y'all about um, voting. You can't change policy if you don't change the people who are the policymakers. You can whine, complain, create a hashtag, talk on Twitter, but you've got to be able to affect policy makers. Let's talk about Washington State. where a Pierce County. Washington family is going to get $4 million settlement for the police-involved death of their loved one. Manuel Lewis was leaving a convenience store in March 2020 when police stopped him. He was pinned to the ground and cried, I can't breathe. Three of the officers involved were indicted on several charges for the murder. Christopher Burbank and Matthew Collins faced second-degree murder charges. Timothy Rankin was charged with first-degree manslaughter. Another one of those cases uh, that we continue to see. Um, all right, folks. A Hollywood staffer is suing the LAPD for $20 million after what he claims was a racially motivated traffic stop that led to guns being pointed at him. 31-year-old Ernest Simon Jr., a driver for ABC's critically acclaimed show, Gray's Anatomy, was pulled over. Police believe Simon was driving a stolen vehicle. Simon had just dropped off some cast and crew members for an unlocation shoot. In the rented Ford production van, according to an affidavit—excuse me, according to the lawsuit—after Simon was pulled over, the officers ran a license plate check on the production van, but they mistakenly matched it to a stolen BMW sedan. Simon says, despite being cooperative, he was held at gunpoint for nearly 20 minutes in front of cast members. Um, Monique, I—how I, do you get a? Ford van confused with a BMW sedan.
3: Well, no, I mean, they screw up. I don't want to say that that part was intentional, but the issue is after you screw up, you have an opportunity to correct it and there should be a lot of fail safes along the way. And they they did not do that. So it wasn't one dropped ball. It was repetitive.
4: I, I, I just don't, again, <laughs> I, I sit here and we do these cases repeatedly, Robert, and, and you sit here and go, how dumb can y'all be? <laughs> I, I, like, the, the the video, the black woman, I think she's in Houston, where the same thing, cops po- po- point the gun at her, and then the cop woman's like, no, no, uh, it's, 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 it's a learning curve. She was like, damn a learning curve! My ass could have been shot!
12: <laughs> but, but Ro, I think the worst part is, that and this is just so par for the course for black men, that we, we don't even raise an eyebrow to. It. You know, I, I can't think of any black man I know who hasn't had a gun pulled on him by cops at some point in life for some trivial situation. Uh, you, you ran a stop sign, and now there's a gun being pulled on you as the officers are approaching. Uh, You're walking out of a convenience store. There The gun pulled on you as the officer. These are things that happened to me. So I'm speaking from experience, so I think that we do need to start having more civil suits because for far too long, we've just been told to kind of let this kind of roll off of our backs, just be happy that nothing worse happened. When in reality, I think if you start getting some nice six-figure, seven-figure settlements out of these police departments, maybe they will train themselves and train their officers to approach a black man the same way you would a little old white lady named Beth. Treat us the same way because we have the exact same constitutional rights and we have the exact same protections under uh, under the rule of law that anyone else does. So if you wouldn't pull a gun on a little old white lady named Beth, then don't pull a gun on me.
4: Scott, I just saw a video. uh, It was posted on several pages. Brothers in a grocery store. uh, Cops get a call saying some uh, white man in a green jacket. Uh, is placing items in his coat. They roll up on a brother in the store who's black with an orange jacket. Then they try to claim <laughs> it was tan. And the brother's like, okay, how did y'all get a call about me when I walk in the store behind y'all? <laughs> and they're like, uh, uh, sir, calm down. I'm like, he's like, damn, I'm getting calm. <laughs> I mean, and, and then of course, while they're talking to him, another cop actually arrests the white guy in the green jacket. All right. Sure. Green jacket, All right. orange jacket. They're the same. Well, it went, I mean, this ain't for the AMU colors.
5: <laughs> <laughs> they you, and then they, and they told him to calm down. Well, the other thing they'll say is, oh, we got a smart ass, right? About 25 years ago, the police, my alarm went off in my home, and the police came and they dragged me out and put me on the ground. And and put handcuffs on me and a gun to my head, and they say, "Where's your ID?" <laughs> I said, "It's my house. It's it's in there with the it's in there with the gun and drugs. My ID right next to my gun and drugs." And they call yourself. Oh, I was to ass ask you the if they found the gun I mean, and the drugs. There, That's what I was there is just you. no discretion. Um, you, even when you call a supervisor, you can't have. I have never seen a supervisor come out. To authorize an arrest. You know, in most jurisdictions, if you say, I protest the arrest, have the sergeant come out and authorize this arrest, even the sergeant, whether it's a bad arrest or not, will talk to the citizen and won't coach the cops on what they've screwed up, essentially. It just doesn't happen because of the police union and the power of the police union. And then lastly, you've got to really think about the hiring process who are we giving guns and badges to? Why don't we require them to have a college degree or some specialized training in discretion and de-escalating these situations so you're not making dumb mistakes? All of these scenarios are just dumb. You sit there and think, these aren't split-second decisions the officers are making. These are just like, in regular time, decisions they're making. They have a gun and a badge and a flag on their arm, and and yet they are being abusive in the implementation of their jobs. And so... Until we hire better, train better, and transform, as Ben Crump says, transform these police departments, you're going to continue to have these bonehead mistakes, and they're deadly mistakes very often. That's the dangerous part. It would be funny if it wasn't so dangerous.
4: Well, absolutely. In fact, so the the brother uh, who they rolled up on that grocery store, uh, we'll have him as attorney on on Roller Mark Uncultured. Uh, on world exactly. show. Got to go to a break. Right. William and Kate, they in Jamaica. Jamaica saying, hey, mom, take your ass home. We will explain when we come back. On um, Roland Martin on filters on the Black Star Network. Don't forget, download the app. Please, the Black Star Network app. Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Apple TV, uh, A- Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, Samsung, Xbox, uh, Samsung TV, Xbox as well. Uh, so please, uh, uh, be sure to grab it, please, and don't forget to support our Bring the Funk Fan Club. Every dollar you give goes to support this show. And so, uh, PO Box 57196, Washington, D.C. 20037. Cash App, dollar sign R M unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin unfiltered. Venmo is R M unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at rollinsmartin.com, Rolling at unfiltered.com. I'll be right back.
3: the next A Balanced Life, and as we grind down to the end of another long winter, it's easy to slip out of balance and into the foggy doldrums. On the next A Balanced Life, ways to push through the gray days until the warm days of spring arrive. Join me, Dr. Jackie, on A Balanced Life on Black Star Network.
0: Impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives, and we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network.
3: Don't you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star
1: Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network.
5: This is the Riddle.
3: What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packard. I'm Chrisette Michelle. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
13: I The children that are victimized, they don't understand the difference between an offender and a pedophile or a pornographer. And I do think it's a distinction without a difference. Let me ask you about gun rights. Um, violent crime is rampant. We have seen that during the last year, it's making people really nervous. Uh, pulled some stats. In 2021, 27 major US cities experienced a 44% increase. In homicides since 2019 over a dozen cities set new homicide records in 21 and a lot of families no longer feel safe so they're buying guns they're buying ammo and trying to make certain that they can protect themselves and in times like this I think we're really fortunate that the founders afforded such Constitutional Protection as the Second Amendment. So, very quickly, walk me through what um, current Supreme Court precedent says about the Second Amendment.
1: Thank you, Senator. Current Supreme Court precedent Mm -hmm. says that um, under the Second Amendment, there is an individual Fundamental right to keep and bear arms um, in the home and the f- opinion focuses on those circumstances. Okay, and so you
13: agree it is an individual right and not only reserved to militias because there are some that keep trying to say it's only reserved to militias. But if my memory is correct, you base this on uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, that it is an individual Yes, ma'am, right. that the, okay. the
1: Supreme Court has established it's an individual okay.
13: right. I wanted to get that on the record because I don't think anybody had asked you that <laughs> this entire time. Um, here's another question. I've asked other judicial nominees that are coming to us for the district court and...
4: All right, folks, welcome back. Y'all know I can't stand listening to Marsha Blackburn talk, uh, cause she but as dumb as a dodo bird. All right, y'all, let's talk about uh, Kate and William being in Jamaica. They've been met with protests there. In fact, uh, Jamaicans are saying, you know what? Enough with the Queen and her jubilee. The jubilee. How about will you no longer? Uh, are the um, are the person we want leading the country? They also want reparations. Pro- protesters gathered outside the British High Commission building in Kingston hours before the arrival of William and Kate, the Duke and of Cambridge in Jamaica. The protest comes the dozens of prominent leaders in Jamaica, more than hundred, published a letter demanding an apology and slavery reparations from England. The leaders also criticized week-long Central American and Caribbean tour the royal couple embarked on Saturday which coincides with the 70th anniversary of the Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. Today, during a meeting with the royal couple, Jamaica's prime minister made it known the country intends to break from the monarch.
5: Hans, the
4: club. Brought thousands of Africans in the island to toil under inhumane
5: conditions. Uh,
2: a very expressive, um,
0: and I am certain that you would have seen the spectrum of expressions yesterday. Um, there are issues here which are, as you must know, unresolved. Uh, But your presence gives an opportunity for those issues to be placed in context, put front and center, and to be addressed uh, in as best as we can. Uh, But Jamaica is, as you would see, uh, a country that is very proud of our history, very proud of what we have achieved. And uh, we're moving on. we intend to attain in short order of
2: development
4: uh, and fulfill
11: our true ambitions in the independent uh, developed prosperous country. Thank you,
4: Now the Royal Couple trip was at the Queen's request. Other countries are also debating cutting ties with the monarch. Um, You know what, Robert? Guess what? Barbados did this. Look, this is ending colonial rule and these are black countries. These are folks who are saying why in the hell should we keep bowing down to the queen? We can control our own destiny. Works for me.
12: Exactly. And this is step one of uh, decolonization that we've seen across the uh, Caribbean and African nations in Southeast Asia for the better part of the last 60 years, uh, where the first part uh, is, is breaking those colonial ties. There are many uh, nations across the er, across the world where the Queen of England is still their head of state, where they still use British currency, where they still speak the English language. Uh, and I think the part of the decolonization process has to begin with, one, breaking those historical bonds, but then secondarily, uh, taking away the economic and social rule often does left in its wake, that even after the monarchies leave and after the colonizations leave, uh, most of the country's economy is still run by Western nations and their corporations, that there's still their military strength is controlled by those nations. Their foreign policy uh, is still controlled by those nations. So we have to interface to decolonization, where we return resources, people, uh, and also the the money that was stolen from them back to these nations. We start seeing more and more antiquities being returned. The British museums have stolen and French museums have stolen under the course of the last several centuries, well, now we have to move to that next phase. When are you going to pay back the billions and trillions of dollars that you have stolen from these people over the course of the last several centuries? When are you going to pay back the billions of dollars in uh, colonial, uh, uh, colonial debt that you charged Haiti, for example, for France, or, the, or Angola had to pay, or many of the other African nations <laughs> that have broken away? So we have to start confronting this not as an individualized nation-by-nation issue, but by the entire uh, formerly colonialized world, going back to Europe and say, look, it's time for you to pay up. And I think that if you do it as one united voice, you have far more power than island by island or nation by nation.
4: You know, the thing here, um, Monique, uh, is, I mean, look at Bermuda. I mean, here's a black country, uh, yet the head of state uh, is still the queen. Uh, And um, you know, when you look at the the independence of many African nations that took place um, with Ghana in 1957. Liberia, of course, was um, the first republic there uh, in Africa. But, but, but this is something that uh, it is important about self govern self-control, and, and cutting ties uh, with the colonial past uh, where uh, they dictated uh, policy in these black countries.
3: It is replaced with... I, think, is or on subsumed. I can't
4: hear. There you go. Now I can hear you. Okay, Monique, go ahead.
3: I think what is important is that is it is subsumed or replaced by a stable government, though. What I would hate <coughs> is for in the breach for the destabilization to mean more suffering rather than less uh, for the people as they transition from a colonial... Sub-state uh, to whatever is next in on their road to controlling their own destiny, and and I do
4: well. That, that's I not the that case. Just be in for instance, uh, internally. But 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 understand, Jamaica, you have Jamaica is, is is self-governing. Okay, you have a prime minister, you have opposition party. Bermuda is self-governing, but the head of state is still the queen. So. It's not like you don't already have self-governed uh, countries. You have that in Jamaica as well as Bermuda. You have that in Barbados as well. They just simply said, no longer are we going to be a part of the monarchy. The, the head of state is no longer going to be the queen. The head of state will be the prime minister, uh, whoever leads the country.
3: Right. But I'm concerned about the financial implications, along with what Robert was saying about what they are owed and what was stolen from them. I'm concerned about the manner in which the infrastructure changes when there is no support whatsoever. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the reasons some people when Puerto Rico went through all of the trouble that it went through as a part of the United States, um, when people seem to not understand that was true, is because they, it they function um in a lot of destabilization that is in my opinion, largely our fault. Um, And so I wouldn't want for the same thing to be the case here. When you think about the countries that you named, we're dealing with still some of the most beautiful but most impoverished areas in the world. Uh, And so you go in where the cruise ships go in and where the fancy hotels are, it looks one way. You go into the city and you see something completely altogether different. The people who work at the resorts could never afford to live there. And I do believe that there has to be a road to balancing that out in order for it to be a real freedom journey.
11: Well, God.
5: you know, you know, Roland, what, what I don't understand is why in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now, you go to these Caribbean countries and the first picture you see is this white lady with a crown when you go through the get your bags and you go through the airport and stuff. I, I understand they used to own this country but, I mean, that's decades ago, maybe. I, I don't understand why this white woman still got to be the head of the state. I'm not... And they are self-governing. I don't think they get any money from the U.K., these Caribbean countries, or Bermuda. And so it just seems to be a relic from the past that they just need to formally cut, unless there's some other historical or economical-political benefit by, by the queen being the head of the state. I just don't I, I don't understand the whole historical uh significance of all of that, other than the fact that they were colonized, they colonized these Caribbean countries and Bermuda well,
12: and Scott. similar uh well, islands. Well, Scott. Scott, it's kind of like us. You go into the black grandparents' houses until this day, they got a picture of white Jesus and JFK hanging up. It's about being indoctrinated. It's about being colonized. It's about uh, these people coming in, taking away your language, taking away your religion, taking away your family traditions, uh, taking away your genetic lineage, to the po- and then teaching you to worship them more so that you appreciate your elders and your ancestors. So uh, we can't blame them for what they've been indoctrinated into. Just say so you can't blame us for what we've been indoctrinated into no. uh, right now. We're, we're all okay. What
5: in the what does look, that mean look, look, in 2022? What does that look, look, mean in 2022? God, what benefit do I get out of having the white woman at the airport, a picture of
12: her? I, I, I
5: what do look, I get look, if I'm if I'm Jamaica?
12: Well, well, one, I think the traditional argument has been on the foreign policy stage. By having one <laughs> united kingdom, it's called the United Kingdom, uh, you would have uh-huh. a, a bigger voice. This is, the vo- this is the argument they're making, not the argument that I'm making, uh, that you'd have a bigger voice in foreign policy, that particularly with NATO and UN, you're part of a, uh, a group that gets a veto. Well, they don't mention that you don't really get a say in what they do. All you kind of do is get drugged into every single European war that they, uh, they decide to get into. But I think you're seeing this awakening happening across the world. Uh, the British monarchy, at one point was so large, you know, the sun never set on it. Yeah. It's down yeah. Literally, uh, you know, the United Kingdom of uh, Ireland, Wales, and uh, Great Britain. So we're seeing the colonial powers fall apart. So now I think it's time for that colonized world to join hands and kind of show up and say, all right, where my money at? And I think that's, ne- that's going to be the rallying cry for the next half of the century.
4: Well, you know, now that's going to be a problem. Well, and on that particular, on that particular point, one of the Jamaican, one, one second, one second, on that point, one of the Jamaican lawmakers uh, has been demanding that the UK pay some seven billion dollars, seven billion pounds in reparations. That comes out to nine point two uh, billion dollars. Uh, that right there, of course, the UK controlled uh, Jamaica for more than three hundred years. There were numerous. Uh, bloody rebellions one of the things that one of the things that we know um from history monique is that uh haiti got its independence but but was forced by the united states and others to have to pay uh their oppressor back uh that contributed greatly to that country still being a broke country today
5: Mm -hmm. so here's
4: jamaica saying uk y'all have taken from us you've stolen from us you got time. To send, that mo- send that money back to Jamaica.
3: And I just, where is the enforcement? Unless you have two parties willing to come to the table, because I mean, there's not any international body, uh, not United Nations or anybody else that could govern and make this happen. So, um, I'm I'm at a loss as to how it gets fixed.
12: Well, well the, the interesting thing well, is that what Jamaica. What the interesting thing for for me is what, what Jamaica is asking for is less money than we just sent Ukraine last week. I mean, we we literally found that money in the couch cushions to send to Ukraine, but we can't send as reparations for 300 years of uh, subjugation by the uh, by the British Crown and African. He know the answer that. We can't even get a down payment on our reparations. We can't even have a Senate hearing just to have a study commission over it after 40 <laughs> years. So, this is why I'm saying that you're going to have to start uniting hands, saying, well, oh, look, Jamaica can't do it by itself, but the entire Caribbean and the African continent and Southeast Asia all say, well, look, y'all can either give us our money back or China got their checkbook open right over here. Maybe we'll become friends over there. I think that's when we start getting some movement in the, uh, in the global movement uh, to end colonialism.
5: Yeah, but you need leverage, though. What's Jamaica's leverage in their demand?
12: You have without leverage. You need white countries to support that colonizer. demand, don't you? When you, have the, when you have the entire pre-colonized world coming together, well, now you have leverage. That includes India. Because remember, India was dominated by Great Britain for uh, 300 mm-hmm. years. Now, that includes many of the uh, places where you're trying to get rare earth elements and natural resources. Most of the places that got oil, those are the previously co- un- colonized world. So you start bringing those groups together and start saying, well, look, we're going to need them checkbooks to get open. That's the leverage you're talking about, and that's why these Western nations keep these little phony wars going on throughout the developing world because they keep us fighting each other. We're never going to look up and say, where's my money at? No, I got you. I got you. I
5: got you. What else you got rolling? you want us to keep talking on this subject? Okay. We can keep talking. So let me ask you this from a historical perspective. Oh. I know your
12: ass did not. I'm sorry.
4: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? In the words of Orlando Jones uh, (coughs) to uh, Eddie Griffin in the movie Double Take, you campaigned for an ass whipping and you about to get elected. (laughs)
5: well you're gonna be a you're gonna be a bad no 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 no. let me
4: let me let me let me me go let me go ahead and go to break let me go ahead and go to break before you get cussed out all right y'all watching rolling mark unfiltered straight from the people's republic of brooklyn uh the offices of Spike lee's 40 acres in the mule uh here in new york city you're watching uh the black side network back in a moment
2: chair take your seat at the black table with me dr greg carr here on the black star network every week we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in join the conversation only on the black star network
3: My
8: name is Latoya Luckett. Yo, it's your man Dion Cole from Blackish, and you're watching... Roland
1: Martin Unfiltered.
8: Stay woke.
4: All right, folks, welcome back uh, to Roland Martin Unfiltered. So, this is interesting here. The uh, Georgia... Uh, higher education system, they've announced that um, for this year, that uh, public universities in Georgia, uh, students will not have to submit SAT and ACT scores to enroll. The University System of Georgia uh, called this uh, temporary. uh, They said because they're getting a lot of incomplete applications. Robert, uh, we're seeing a lot of systems uh, and folks in higher education rethink this need for students to take the SAT and the ACT test the admissions people say they're looking at other uh, things they're looking at their, their high school GPA they're looking at extracurricular activity uh, what do you make of this push to say why in the hell are we make the students take an SAT ACT test how is that somehow uh, a determinant of their success in college
12: Uh, Well, I think this is the wholesale understanding and reckoning of the fact that for the past half century in America, we've outsourced education to standardized tests and has been an abject failure. Uh, There's no evidence that uh, your test scores in high school or your test scores in college have anything to do with your ability to succeed as an adult. It measures your ability to take a test. And often when it comes to the LSAT and tests like that, it measures your ability to hire tutors and buy the uh, proper books that you need and devote the hours necessary to studying for the test. And immediately, once you pass it or you get a a good score on it, you forget everything on it, and it uh, plays no role in your adult uh, your adult life. So we need to start looking at students holistically, um, finding out what extracurricular activities, what clubs are they joined, what community service activities are they taking part in, uh, what is their moral value, what are their what is their faith, what is their um, beliefs in helping their communities, building out an actually more complete human being who will be a contribution to the education, not just on campus, but uh, but a citizen of the next generation. That is far more important than can you check a box or can you hit it up random boxes in a row uh, to get a good score. So I think that is a, a right that we start phasing this out. It would be moved to more holistic uh, understandings of what makes a person a person when it comes to college admissions.
4: You know, the, the thing here, uh, Monique, um, again, watching university administrators uh, make these decisions are important. Let's also understand implications. You know, this whole test preparation stuff, has turned into a multi-billion dollar industry.
3: It's turned into a multi-billion dollar industry and some people have gone to jail uh, trying to circumvent the industry. (laughs) So uh, that definitely is one of the ways that they're will be repercussions uh, that will be far and wide, but I think obviously the other repercussion is that for black and brown students in particular who, due to the manner in which our educational systems have at times failed us, tested poorly and it had nothing whatsoever to do with our ability, as Robert said, to achieve on a higher educational level. And this this will, in many ways, level that playing field uh, and they will have to go by the available systems, the record of the student's performance in school in order to make these determinations. And I'm, I'm glad it's happening while my babies are just now about to have to take them or not take them.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, again, uh, it's not all, but uh, we're seeing this growing trend, Scott.
5: Well, I, I, I think historical black colleges like Morehouse and others have always looked at those standardized testing as a test of your aptitude for intelligence, right? But not necessarily whether you're gonna be a high performer, whether it's if you graduate from college or whether you can even manage a college curriculum. I know one of the things we do at Morehouse is, is we provide, if you've got a high test score and your grades are, let's say medium, however you measure them. uh, Some of the things, some of the things we do is, we have a summer program for young men who to see whether they can handle a college course load, see if they can live on their own and see if they can matriculate in a college environment, as opposed to just being really, really smart and a good test taker. Uh, I know uh, Howard and others have similar programs, but it's got to be a, a, a continuum of factors as to whether we accept kids or not. And I think that that helps students of color because the continuum of characteristics and and, and, and uh, recommendation letters and, and uh, their community involvement, all is kind of the total measure of a student and how Morehouse and Howard and Hampton and others or any majority schools can nurture their development, which is our job, to nurture their development and turn them into adult citizens who are going to be contributing to society and lending their expertise to making the country or the world a better place, then you've got to have that total look at the student as opposed to just being able to take a great test.
4: Well, let's talk about uh, some changes happening in New York City where I'm at. Uh, Last week, the uh, mayor, Eric Adams said, he didn't have time to be worrying about some athletes whining and complaining about not being vaccinated. Well, according to Politico, uh, the mayor is going to lift uh, this mandate, allowing for unvaccinated athletes uh, to be able to play professional sports in New York City. Of course, Kyrie Irving with the Brooklyn Nets has been one of the uh, loudest critics of that. Uh, not He has been unable to play in home games as a result of this. Uh, and also the mayor is lifting the mask mandate for toddlers in city daycares uh, on April 4th as well. Of course, you've got baseball games coming up. You've got numerous uh, baseball players who have not been vaccinated. Uh, you also have folks who are saying it's time to turn the page uh, from COVID that the Biden administration needs to also shift its attention away from COVID. Monique, what say you?
3: I at this point
4: don't trust anything that
3: comes out of Mira Adams' mouth. He's just sketchy to me. Um Uh-oh. I don't I I don't get it. <laughs> uh, he makes me nervous. And um, I don't know that it matters if he lifts the mandate, if the professional sports themselves are not lifting it. So I think it's a wash.
4: But here, so I'm, I'm reading this story here, Robert, and this uh, this is the city's, City Hall's former COVID-19 senior advisor, Jay Varma, uh, who also used to work for the CDC, said, quote, I think the same rules and vaccination should apply uniformly to all. If there's a carve out for this group, why can't any other group then raise its hand and say, I deserve a carve-out, too?
12: And they're exactly right. And this is part of the concern about making policy based on arbitrary and capricious standards. Uh, if it was a, a clear case of following the science, where I think most of us understand, if you can show me, here's the, uh, here's the number of cases... There's a number of people vaccinated because we've reached a certain threshold. We decided these rules can be uh, relaxed. I think most people can understand that, but when you're making these kind of grand and braggadocious statements just last week about how you're not lifting the mandate, and now was just in New York last, or, well, on Friday. Uh, so and then you're saying this week, well, now all those things are going to change at the drop of head. Yeah, give us a little more information on that. And we are seeing, uh, seeing the stealth variant, which is uh, making waves in Europe. We're seeing Hong Kong has an outbreak going on currently. We're seeing in uh, China, they just locked down 50 million other people. So as much as all of us, and I mean all of us, want this thing to be over and done with for all of eternity, I don't think it's quite time yet to simply just ignore it and move on to the next subject. Uh, shout out to Dr. Deborah Fer holden who was just named uh, dean at uh, New York University School of Global Health Initiatives, uh, who's really been a, a leading voice in the black community on this pandemic from the beginning and i think we need to start following science and following the experts in this and not the politicians uh more so so that we can get more consistent uh, uh public policy on what exactly we're doing because right now you can go uh not just state to state you can go city to city and somehow sometimes business to business and have completely different covet rules i think we all just want some consistency based in science to get this over with
5: well well, but, Robert, you can't have it both ways, Excellent. can you? On one hand, the, if you believe the numbers, the numbers are down. That's why you in D.C. and elsewhere they're lifting the mask mandate. They're reducing some of the regs or eliminating some of the regs because we are coming out of Omicron, it seems like. We are uh, doing better. The numbers of cases of infections is going down. And if you, if you don't believe the numbers or it, it's helter-skelter from city to city, then, you know, you're going to be wearing masks the rest of your life. Maybe that's the new reality, and maybe we're going to have to manage uh, COVID going forward and get boosted every year. But the idea of shutting down a city or or keeping kids out of school or wearing a mask or not wearing a mask uh, and uh, going into the office three days a week and six feet apart and, and all the things and washing our hands, which we ought to be doing anyway... Maybe that's just going to be part of us managing COVID like we manage the cold and flu season. I think that's where we're headed because we're not going to have herd immunity. But the numbers are down and people are COVID tired and people are tired of wearing these masks, masks saved lives. And so I still keep a mask with me. But ultimately, in the end, uh, you-, you can't fight the power of the people in and, and Florida and Texas and, and uh, Some other states who have never really embraced it, Georgia, um, haven't really led the way because their numbers are the least to come down normally. But at the same time, there's a feeling in this country that we have to figure out how to manage COVID and matriculate, manage and matriculate. And I think that's what you're hearing uh, from the mayor of New York. And that's what you're hearing from the CDC. That's what you're hearing from uh, the public, if you will.
4: Well, but, but but here's what we also, though, are about to deal with. Um, you, you are seeing these people uh, say uh, that um, uh, Adams has said it, Monique. Uh, Look, folks got to return back to the offices. You, you're seeing more and more companies saying, nope, enough yep. of this staying home. But you're getting massive pushback. Yeah, you hear people talking about, you know, Get, get rid of the mass mandates. I'm sick of this whole stuff. You got these caravan, convoy, yahoos. But guess what? It's a whole bunch of folks still not trying to get sick. I get the phrase, we got to manage COVID. That sounds good until you're one of those folks who have been sick as hell as a result. Yeah, yeah but if,
5: he, if you're ba- vaccinated and... He said Monique. Hold on, I said Monique. Oh, I said Monique. I didn't hear Monique in your term in your conversation. Forgive me,
4: Monique. So he heard it. I mean, how hard do I have to make it when I say Monique? It was
3: that plain like language in the question, Scott. It was plain language. Um, it's not right, just but if you things, listen
4: though. to the conversation versus trying <laughs> to run your mouth, then you get it. So, Monique, please yes. respond.
3: It's not just illness. I agree with everything that you said about that, but the fact of the matter is these companies are concluding that the forced work from home and increased satellite status of their employees was productive that they did not have a decline in productivity and that they saved a ridiculous amount of overhead in keeping offices going, you know, fully staffed uh, in terms of business expense. I can understand why the mayor would have a problem with that because that means transit will be down and rentals will be down and all of these other things that make a city run, but these companies are in the business of their own bottom lines. And so, you know, many corporations, nationwide Wide have transitioned fully. They're not going back to work. And then others have said that it's optional. And I love all of it. It makes sense to me.
4: But see, the, the, the thing here, Robert, that, that that's a trip when we're having this conversation here. Um, Monique's point is right. It comes down to productivity. It's also you're dealing with control. I mean, you got these people, oh, you know, we, we can't watch people. We can't see what they're doing. <laughs> when Adams is talking about, look, they're sitting here whining and complaining because they're losing restaurant money, bar money. If folks are staying at home, they're not spending all that money coming in. But guess what? People have gotten accustomed to working from home. They also are like, uh, guess what? I'm not sitting in a commute for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours.
12: Yeah, I think also companies have realized they get a lot more work out of you working from home than they do at the office, because if we're the office, I'm coming in about 15, 30 minutes, maybe an hour late. I depend on the day of the week. I'm going to take my lunch break. I'm going to sit by the water, in, uh, water cooler. As soon as I get, if I get off at 5, about 4.30, I'm going to start packing up. Uh, 4.45, I'm out the door. When you're working from home, I think most people can attest to this. You get on that computer at 8, 39 o'clock, you might not get up and leave till 7 or 8 o'clock at night. They get more work out of you working from home. Your pro- productivity actually ends up going up. And I think for the millennial generation and younger, millennial, Gen Z, uh, Generation Alpha thereafter, this whole rubric of the idea of going into an office just ain't going to happen. It's just not going to work with them. It's not going to align with their spirit, as Lauren Hill would say. And I think that we're going to have to economically adjust to that because we have so many downtowns in so many cities that are based upon this idea of having your morning work rush hour, going to that same uh, a coffee shop every single morning, going to that same uh, food truck and getting your sandwich every morning, parking in the parking day. You have entire downtown economies that are based on the idea of people commuting in, going to these office buildings every day, and you have these massive towers built in downtowns across the country that are soon going to be completely depopulated. So we're going to have to start having the conversation as a nation. How do we readjust the way that we view, uh, view life and the uh, nuclear family idea that's been created where you live out in the suburbs, you commute in kind of the beating heart of the city, you're going to have to reevaluate that. And I think COVID in many ways has forced us to accelerate many of the advances that were going to happen in society uh, anyway. Well, now those things are happening right now. And I think this is the tension we're seeing between public policy, the people who've existed in the traditional uh, economy, and the new way, th- uh, way of thinking on many things. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in a calendar call in a criminal courtroom somewhere thinking to myself, this could all been done online. Well, now that's all done online, it's going to be very difficult to get people going back to the way that used to be done.
4: And and yes, Scott, there is an entire ecosystem uh, that is driven based upon people being in the office. Uh, You've got uh, these uh, restaurants or stores, these convenience stores (coughs) that are housed uh, in these office buildings. But here's what's also happening. Companies are also reassessing uh, the office space—they're reassessing uh, the amount of money that they are spending. Uh, they all of a sudden they're going, "Wait a minute! If, if we figure it out, do we have to actually have massive conference rooms and all of this big old footprint? And all these different things along those lines." And so, I mean, that, that's really—that's really what uh, they're dealing with. I mean, there are there are expenses, and as a result, people have got. It, it used to be like like even in television, it used to be hey, you want people on the set, you want them there. Well, the public has gotten used to seeing people, frankly, in these four boxes that they're like, all right, I'm good. Do you have to go back to this deal where you have everyone on the set, which now means I got to go there, take the time, do it, then, okay, get back home versus, yo, boom, turn the computer on, I'm here. Then when I'm done, close the laptop, Go sit here in your pajamas and go eat dinner or do whatever. Yeah, you're right about that.
5: But but whether it's media or the medical profession, corporations, big law, big accounting, you got one problem with that, and this is where the rubber meets the road, that two years ago we were all in long-term lease space, right? And on one hand, you've got long-term lease space whereby those leases aren't aren't coming up or aren't, aren't, aren't running out for another 5, 10, 20 years, maybe 15 years. Big law made more money than it's ever made before remotely, shocking and astonishing themselves. But as they make 20% over their budget, they're also struggling with real estate costs that they're locked into. Uh, you take a big firm that's got 28 locations and big office space, let's say, hundred lawyers in each jurisdiction or each city, that's a lot of wasted real estate that we've had to absorb over the last two-plus years. What do you do with it? You either negotiate to get out, that's a cost, or you get people in there so you can have a uh, uh, valuation evaluation differential so that at least you're showing that you're using the space until you can get out of it. I think the whole office space industry is driving this debate and driving this kind of balance between working remotely, which is great, and at the same time, we're locked into these long-term leases, and we got to do something for our bottom line, even though we're generating more money than we've ever generated before, and we're still absorbing those, those real estate costs. Ideally, for big law firms and big corporations, is to get rid of that space, do hoteling, hoteling or something, and then make even more money, since we're all for-profit businesses. That's, that's the struggle you're seeing or the tension, the economic tension you're seeing that meets post-COVID, you know, uh, uh, work life.
4: Well, I'm going to tell you right now, um, I'm telling you right now, all of these companies, if you think the big resignation has been huge, they had better get ready for more of this because you're going to see uh, it continue if these companies start mandating people come back. I'm telling you, especially in these places uh, where folks have had massive commutes, uh, that uh, long commutes, uh, they have gotten adjusted to seeing their family more, their husbands, their wives, their children, uh, and so I, I, I think companies better tread very carefully mandating folks return. It's going to be some issues. All right, folks, uh, I'm going to go to a quick break. We'll come back with final thoughts uh, as we talk about uh, the passing of a former Secretary of State, Madeline Albright. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Start Network. Black Start Network is easy.
3: Hi,
1: I'm Teresa Griffin.
3: Hi, my name is LaToya Luckett, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
4: All right, folks, Howard University and non tenure staff have reached an agreement averting a strike. This morning, the agreement was reached after two days of bargaining between faculty members and school administrators. The contract proposal includes improvements in compensation and job security for both non-tenure track lecturers and adjuncts. Full details of the tentative agreement are being shared with HU faculty who will vote on the contract proposal in the next few days. Last week, Howard faculty members announced that they were go on a three-day strike if they didn't reach an agreement with the school. The proposed deal affects more than 300 adjunct and non-tenure track full-time faculty members. And so uh, certainly glad Uh, to see that. Folks, some sad news. Madeleine Albright, uh, of course, the former Secretary uh, of State, uh, has passed away at the age of 84. Her family announced that uh, she passed away uh, as a result of cancer. Of course, she was uh, highly instrumental uh, in uh, leading uh, the State Department. Uh, She also, of course, that took place uh, under uh, President Uh, bill clinton she was uh, married to joseph albright from 1959 until 83 they had three kids Uh, she also born and prayed and came to the u.s in 1948 to escape communism communist yugoslavia Uh, she was a central figure in president bill clinton's administration she served as u.s ambassador to the united nations before becoming the nation's top diplomat in his second term she was awarded The Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama in 2012. She championed the expansion of NATO and pushed for the alliance to intervene in the Balkans to stop genocide and ethnic cleansing. She also sought to reduce the spread of nuclear weapons and champion human rights and democracy across the globe. Madeleine Albright uh, passed away, folks, at the age of 84. Folks, that is it for us here from the People's Republic of Brooklyn. Forty acres and a mule. I've been here of course, uh, I was earlier at uh, a conference uh, dealing with, um, of course, minority coaches. Uh, they've been talking about how do they expand their efforts. Uh, we had a conference this morning. I'll quickly show you this here: National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches. Uh, and so this was the program here. Uh, Mike Locksley, of course, uh, he was—he's the head coach at the University of Maryland. Brian Flores, who is suing the NFL. Uh, was also there. I did get a chance to him. Yes, I talked to him directly. Carol, relax. Brian Flores will be coming on Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, very soon. I talked to his attorneys and Brian. I got his phone number as well. We were just texting. Uh, And of course, the summit was to address uh, systemic racism and football hiring practices. Uh, And so we had some great conversations So looking forward to giving y'all more details uh, about that. And so I want to thank all the folks. Um, And so, uh, Scott, uh, let me think, uh, Scott, Monique, uh, Robert as well for being on the panel. Uh, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, Thank you so very much. Uh, What I'm trying to figure out, I told you all, YouTube people, uh, come on, y'all, it's 762 likes, okay? We should be hitting 1,000. There's more than 2,000 of y'all watching right now, uh, and so we should easily be hitting 1,000. I told y'all I shouldn't have to be begging y'all every day to hit the like button. It ain't hard, okay? It's not hard at all. Uh, And so, you love today's commentary. Uh, we know Scott did what he normally do, being a kappa, uh, always just running his mouth, interrupting when I'm trying to go to Monique because he always trying to get more screen time. Uh, we know how that goes, uh, and so uh, I, I guess he I, he couldn't handle. I guess he figured I didn't jump, jump in his butt enough, so he decided to start some mess. But that's what he always does so I uh, hope y'all enjoyed all the c- uh, commentary conversation they have concluded the hearings today for Judge K- uh, uh Brown Jackson will pick up tomorrow uh, hopefully the stupid people will no longer be talking uh, we hope that is the case all right y'all come on Aaron 61 I ain't leaving till we get a thousand likes let's go I gotta need 139 Let's hit the like button y'all we should be doing a thousand likes every day on YouTube Okay, Uh, y'all are watching. All I'm asking you to do is do that. In the meantime, download the Black Star Network app, folks. A lot of you were thanking me, tweeting me, that you had an opportunity to watch the confirmation hearings right on our app. I appreciate all of y'all who were doing so. Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon, Fire, xbox samsung tv as well also please join our bring the funk fan club our goal uh is to get um 20, of our fans on an annual basis contributing 50 bucks each uh, that's four hours and 19 cents a month 13 cents a day for you support us in doing what we do of course you can do so by uh sending a cash uh, check or money order to uh p.o box 57196 washington dc 20037 P.O. Box 57196 Washington D.C. 20037. Cash App or Dollar Sign R.M. Unfiltered. PayPal is R. Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is R.M. Unfiltered. Zelle is Roland at RolandS.Martin.com. Roland at RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Folks, that's it. I'm back in the studio. We went to pack up, drive back to D.C. Uh, And so certainly glad to be here uh, in New York City for the conference and also to chop it up with Spike Lee for the documentary he's doing on Colin Kaepernick. Thank you so very much, Clea Robinson. Uh, she of course works with Spike here. Uh, she is uh, Randall Robinson's uh, daughter, uh, and so uh, shout out uh, to Randall uh, and his wife Hazel and folks. Uh, so thank you so very much. We appreciate uh, all of y'all's support in what we do. Thank you so very much. I will see y'all tomorrow right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Ha!